Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of 2 Peter. And we're going to go ahead and bump into the, the third chapter today. We're starting the third chapter today. And if you guys remember last week, it was pretty exciting. It was an MMA fight between Peter and the, uh, the, the, uh, the scoffers, the false teachers. And if you remember, it was a pretty good show because Peter really laid into them. And long story short, he said all these false teachers, all these guys coming in and spreading deception, they're basically animals and they operate without reason or any sense inside of them. But we're going to transition out of that attack against the false teachers now. And, and because the problem, here's the problem with, with false teachers. False teachers wouldn't be a problem except for that people listen to them. If they didn't have an audience, they, they wouldn't, they'd be worth nothing. There'd be no big deal about them at all. But unfortunately, these, these particular ones that we're talking about here were, were, were trying to deceive the very Christians that Peter is writing to in this letter. So Peter is going to end this letter uh, basically by reminding them of the truth. How many of you guys know that we need to be reminded of the truth from time to time? We forget. At least I forget, and, and uh, uh, I'm not special, so I assume everybody else does as well. She thinks I'm special. Hallelujah. That, that's why I keep her around. <laughs> so, so Peter's going to begin to remind them of the truth. And actually, and in this particular part of the letter, he's going to be dealing with one pretty egregious deception that's going on with these false teachers that were coming out at the time. And they were basically saying that Jesus wasn't going to be returning. There wasn't going to be any judgment on the, on the world and that God's kingdom would, would never be established. That's basically the lie that they're telling. And here's the reason why. How many know that, the, that uh, the early church expected Jesus to return much faster? They really thought Jesus was coming back, you know, within months or years. And we begin to see that, that, that he, obviously we know today, it's 2,000 years later, he still ain't come back yet. But they thought he was coming quick. This was the, the idea of the early church. It's been 30 years since Jesus died. And already at this point, because they were so expecting him to come back, at this point they're already giving up. And there's false teachers that are coming in and they're beginning to teach that, you know what, he's never coming back. Life is just going to continue on the same as it's always been. The sun's going to rise. The sun's going to go down. We're going to get up. We're going to eat. We're going to work. We're going to sleep. And nothing's ever going to change. Because they really expected him to come back. And, and the, 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 the church that Peter's talking to here is not the only church that is thinking like this. Matter of fact, the Thessalonian church, they thought the same thing. This is what it said in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, because Paul is speaking to them. He says, Now concerning the coming of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word, or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The, the Thessalonian church, they were concerned. They thought he had already come back. They thought they missed the boat. They're looking around and say, man, we must have missed it. Surely he would have been back by now. So this is a pretty common thing in the early church. And now we've got these false teachers coming, and they're saying, nope, it's never going to happen. And how many of you know why? Why do you guys think this is a pretty big deal? You want to know what happens when, when people think that Jesus isn't coming back and that there's not going to be any judgment and that God's not going to establish his kingdom? When there's no expectation of accountability, people start to live a little bit looser. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in your own life. I noticed that in, in all kinds of people's lives, in my kids' life and in, in my own life. You know, that, I mean, you can think about it probably even at work. If you know that something is being watched, you're, you're on the ball. But if, 
if, it's, if there's not as many eyes on you, you can act a little, bit, a little bit looser, a little bit freer. And that's just a tendency that people have. And that was a big deal because now all of a sudden everyone's going, well, if he's not coming back, I guess we can do whatever we want. It doesn't really matter. It's like the old saying goes, when the cat is away, the mice will play. But in this chapter, we're going to see Peter begin to remind them of the truth. The truth that Jesus is coming. It's going to happen. This isn't a I hope or a maybe. Jesus is coming back. And there is going to be a coming judgment. Now, I thank God that as Christians, the Bible says that uh, we're going to pass out of judgment. And we have been saved from his wrath. How many know that's a good thing? You know, one of the things people read the book of Revelation, and a lot of people get concerned. They get scared about what's happening there. And I'm like, the, the book of Revelation says good news because of two things. One, we're already going to be with Jesus because we pass out of judgment. Christians aren't going to be judged. You guys want to know why? Because Jesus was judged in our place. It's not going to happen again. That would just be silly. What did Jesus do if it's not going to happen again? But you know why else I get excited about the book of Revelations? We win. That's the end result. We win. You see, the thing is, is that Jesus is coming back. There will be judgment. But the only reason that he hasn't coming back right now is, is not because he's not coming, but it's because he wants to give as many people as possible the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Because how many know that when he comes back, the, the time is up for those of us who are living right now? So let's go ahead and get started. In 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 3, he said, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Just in case anybody was curious why they call it 2 Peter, it's right there in the scripture. No mystery there. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. His beloved, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. How many of you guys are into apologetics at all? Nobody. You really should change that. If you don't know what apologetics is, it's, uh, it comes from the Greek word, which means speaking in defense. Basically, apologetics deals with the defense and the establishment, or another way to say that is the defense and proof of the Christian faith. And I really enjoy watching debates on apologetics, particularly the way these line up is, is Christians and atheists. And uh, I personally have a pretty good grasp or understanding of apologetics. You know, the, and this idea of defending the faith is, is not, uh, it's not this idea of, of uh, you know, how do you know, how do you know that, that, that God is, is real? Oh, because I've experienced it. It's not that kind of stuff. It's like, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, if we look at the evidence and we look at accounts and we look at, it's, this, is, this is evidence for, for what the Bible says is true. This is looking at the old record and saying, oh, look, this census that they're talking about right now, we couldn't find it for a long time, but now we found a tablet that references this census in the Bible. This is stuff that's, that's historically um, evidence for the, the reality of, of the Bible. Also, you know, proving that God exists is providing evidence that God actually exists. That's what apologetics is about. And I, I really enjoy it because um, many people would say that Christians have a blind faith. And I think blind faith is stupid. We shouldn't have blind faith. But the reality is, is we don't have a blind faith because, one, there's, there's a strong amount of evidence that God is real, that Christ lived, he died, he rose from the dead. 
And our, our faith is well-founded. In addition, we all have our own personal testimonies on top of that. You know, even if I didn't know about all that other stuff, I would still believe in Jesus because I know what he's done in my life. I know the things that have changed, what's, what's happened to me. I know all of these things. Not a thing would change, but all this other stuff, when I look at the history, it just encourages and strengthens my faith. And it makes it so people can't deceive me because I know the truth. So I'm pretty well versed in this because I really enjoy looking into this stuff. I really enjoy looking at it. Um, but sometimes I watch these debates and the atheists will get up there and they'll lay out an argument against the Christian. And I'm like, man, that is a fantastic argument. It's good. I mean, some these people are way smarter than I am. And they put together arguments. I'm like, the, like if, if I didn't know any better... I would start to be swayed because the arguments that they're making are amazing. And I'm like, what, what, is, what is, I mean, I know he's wrong, but I wouldn't know how to combat that. And then the Christian will get up and rebut it. And I'm like, that argument was awesome too. I mean, the guy just blew him away. Like you watch him and, and they go back and forth. And every time I'm like, man, these guys are brilliant. Like, I don't even know how to, to they, they, but this is what they do. And they've studied and they've learned and I see it and I, and I learn every time I learn more. So that way, if that argument comes up again, I, I know the response. But sometimes an argument will come up. I'm like, man, that's a fantastic argument. What is the guy going to say? And he'll get up and he'll rebut it. And I'll go, wait, I already knew that. I already knew the rebuttal, that I, but I forgot. Sometimes we have to be reminded because it's easy to forget. And that's what what Peter's talking about, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder so you don't forget. So when somebody comes with something that's contrary to the word of God, we don't forget it and we actually have something to, to stand up to rebut what they're saying with. I think this is why I so often revisit the same stuff in apologetics, why I so often read the Bible because I don't want to forget. I don't want to have this stuff fall away so that I'm so easily deceived. And that's why he says that, he says, I'm stirring up your, what kind of mind? Sincere mind. How many know that you can have a sincere and pure mind and still have a bad memory? That's just a fact. If, if you forget something in the word of God, one, read your Bible every day. The more you read it, the less likely you are to forget because you're being stirred up by your mind way more often. But two, if you forget it's not because you're a bad Christian. It's not because you're a failure. Sometimes we just forget. And that's why we need to be stirred up. And Peter doesn't want them to forget the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So basically, he doesn't want them to forget what the prophets said. He doesn't want them to forget what Jesus said. And he doesn't want them to forget what the apostles said. And the reason is because forgetting leads us to being able to be deceived when taught bad theology. And it's so easy to happen. So a minor one would be, anybody ever heard, I can, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Anybody ever heard that one used to validate personal achievement? Like I'm getting ready to sit down at the weight bench. I'm going to have my best bench ever because I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. That's actually not what that scripture is about. It's not about you being able to do any and accomplish any personal achievement that you've ever had in your life. It's actually dealing with trials and hardships. That's the reason why Paul said it. What it's saying is that God will get you through whatever issue that you're facing right now. God, the proper application of that verse is that God is going to get you through anything that's coming against you. It's not about personal achievement. Now, I, that's not what I'm going to lose my mind over. 
you know. Because the truth is, if you're trusting in Jesus for everything, I'm all for that. Even if it is to bench a little bit heavier weight. Trust God for everything. I'm all for that. That's how we should live our life. Trust him in everything. But you know what? It, it leads to stuff that's not so good. The whole, this whole idea uh, that goes around in, in, in some Christian circles of that, that salvation is based on works is a bad application. And now we're dealing with big stuff. Now we're dealing with something that's... But, but if, if, you, if you didn't know the Word, if you hadn't spent time studying the Word of God and somebody just comes up to you and says, well, the book of James says that faith without works is dead, you'd go, man, that's what the Word of God says. That's a good argument. And you could easily be deceived when you don't take into account the rest of the gospel or really the verses around that one verse where it explains what the heck he's talking about. And, you know, uh, spoiler, what he's talking about is, is that if you have faith, there'll be some evidence for it. What he's saying is, is if there is no evidence in your life, then maybe there's not really faith in your life. Not that you have to work for salvation, but rather it's faith that we gain hold of salvation. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. So you can see, though, if you didn't have a good foundation in the Word or you weren't reminded regularly, you could see how easily you could be deceived in those things. Or what if we just go way off base and start talking about stuff that's in the Bible or that's not in the Bible that people think it is. I mean, there's all kinds of sayings. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Not in the Bible. Um, what about uh, God helps those who helps themselves? Some people are convinced that's in the Bible. It's not. What about this one? Listen carefully. Anybody ever heard the expression, no rest for the weary? Not in the Bible. No rest for the wicked is in the Bible. No rest for the weary, not in the Bible. But it, those, sound, those sound good, right? I mean, that sounds like something that would be biblical, right? God helps those who help themselves. I mean, that sounds like if you don't have a foundation, though, you can easily be deceived and think something that isn't the word of God is. So that's why Peter wants, he says, listen, remember what the prophets said. Remember what the Lord said. Remember what the apostles said. And on top of that, know that there are going to be people who are going to come with their scoffing. Those are people who are going to scoff at the Bible and the gospel. And they're going to teach whatever they want to fulfill their own sinful desires. And unfortunately, some of them are just crazy. And it's easy to tell that they're just off base. But some of them preach something that is so close to the real thing that people don't even know that are being deceived. And you probably don't even have to think that far to think of situations where that's happening today in the world. So close to the real thing that people are, because it sounds good, and people are being deceived, and they're lost, and they don't even know it because they don't have a foundation. They weren't stirred up by way of reminder. Because the thing is, is people can make stuff sound so good and make something that is, even use your Christianity against you to make you do or believe something very un-Christ-like. In the second Peter verses, uh, chapter three, verse four, it says, "They will say, "Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." This is in the intro, when I was telling you this is the, the big deal that Peter's going to be dealing with. And here's the deal: Peter and the other apostles 
didn't make up this idea of Christ's return in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when, when Christ is going to return to the earth and pronounce judgment on the earth. That, that day of the Lord, this isn't something that, that, that the apostles made up. How many of you know that? You can actually find this all throughout the New and the Old Testament. You can find it, uh, the prophets taught about it. This is why Peter said, remember the prophets, right? Remember what they said. So if you guys got a pen or you want to write some stuff down, I can't read through it all, but if you want to write some verses down to read about it, now's your chance. I'll give you two seconds. Two, one. Only one person wants to write this stuff down. See, this is, this is the kind of stuff that you should be thinking. What if I'm talking crazy? How do you know I'm not deceiving you? If you don't actually have a foundation in your word, you haven't looked at the stuff. I could be rattling out all kinds of fake stuff. What if I said, look in Second Hesitations, chapter 3? Some of you don't even know that's not a real book in the Bible. My son just yawned. Is it that bad? Am I <laughs> preaching that bad? Oh, man. He's over trying to fall asleep on me. Hallelujah. Somebody give me a water gun. I'm going to keep him awake. Hallelujah. All right, here, here's some verses where the prophets talk about coming judgment. 1 Jude 14 through 15, um, if you read that, it's actually referring to what Enoch said. Isaiah 2, chapter, or sorry, chapter 2, verses 10 through 22, and chapter 13, 6, verse 16. Jeremiah, chapter 30, verse 7, and Daniel 12, verse 1. These are just some of the verses in the Old Testament that talk about upcoming judgment. And it's not just the Old Testament, because uh, the judgment and the return of Jesus is mentioned quite often in the New Testament. One, Jesus taught about it on the, uh, on the Mount of Olives. You can find it in multiple Gospels, but uh, Matthew 24 through 25 is Jesus talking about uh, return in, his return in judgment. Also, the apostles taught on it regularly as well. You can read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, Acts chapter 1 verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 14. Are just, these are just some of the scriptures. And as you can see, that's why I can't read them all this morning because we'd be here all day. But these are only a portion of the reference to, to Jesus' return and, and the upcoming judgment on the world. And this is, this is why he said in verse 2, remember these guys. Remember what they're saying. Remember all of these things. And it's strange to me that a teaching that is so prolific in the Word of God, not only by the prophets, but the apostles taught it, Jesus taught it, it's so prolific of a teaching, it seems strange to me to question it. People had to know that they were crazy, but that's why they had to be stirred up by way of reminder, because these people come in and they sweet talk, they have good arguments. They start making improper application of what they said, and they begin to, to, to deceive God's people. Now, it's bad for those who are deceived. But it's really bad for those who are doing the deceiving. You remember last week he said that they're actually going to bring to themselves their own destruction. But here's the thing is that many in the early church expected the return of Christ to be coming much sooner. And because of that, there were those who began to doubt what those early teachings were. And they began to start preaching something else. That everything would just go on. They began to think that, look... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They looked at the way things have been and how nothing has really changed since the beginning of time, and they figured that it's just going to keep happening this way. Maybe we got it wrong. Maybe all those people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, maybe they all got it wrong. Because nothing's changed. Nothing seems different. And Peter was concerned. Because like I said, when you, when you, when you think nothing's ever going to change, we become complacent. We become stuck in our ways. 
And the truth is, is that we just start getting a little bit freer with how we live our lives. And the reality is, is that living in any kind of sin is bad for us. It's, God doesn't say don't sin because, because he wants to steal your fun. He wants to protect you. He wants to keep you safe because sin will kill you. And then in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, it says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through the water by the word of God, and that by, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, that's the, the, the argument that the, the scoffers were making was is that, look, it's been going since the beginning of time. It's just going to keep going. Nothing's going to happen. And they made this argument that everything was going to be the same. But Peter's like, if you'll just take a, a, a tiny step back and really evaluate what's happened over time, you'll see that it hasn't been the same since always, that things have changed. Peter reminds them that what they're saying is just not true. It sounded like a good argument. It seemed like it made sense, but it just wasn't true. First, he pointed out that it hasn't always existed. Newsflash. I mean, even in, in their argument, they pointed out, right? They said, from the beginning of creation, they're saying it's all been the same. But just that phrase, in their, in their argument, they're already pointing out a change. There wasn't, and then there was. So that's the first change. It hasn't always been God created the heavens and the earth. When God created the earth, that's when time began. And this was at his word, because nothing comes into existence except with the word of God. So God spoke, and you guys know the story. There was light. If you don't know the story, it's the easiest book in the Bible to find, because it's the first one. Genesis, you can read about how the earth was created. And God created it. Time began. There was Nothing, and now there was something. So that's the first thing that's not true. It hasn't always been the same because once there was nothing, now there's something. There was a big change. And I don't know if you realize this, but pretty big change. Not something minuscule, not something small that wouldn't register. There was nothing, now there's something. And then second, that wasn't the only big change that, that's happened at God's Word. But second, after creation had been humming along for some time, going for a while, but all of a sudden the people on this earth start living pretty crazy. And it turns out that we get to a point that in all the earth, there's only a handful of people that are righteous, that are serving God because they trusted God. Only a handful. Seven, I think, is what ultimately get on the boat. You guys know the story I'm talking about. Eight, did I miscount? Sorry, eight, get on the boat. And now you see the, the, the reality that something did change. And we all know this story, actually. We've been, we've been taught, taught it since we were in, in, in Sunday school and, you know, in the kids' church. It's, this is a great story how, how you have to really water it down to teach it to kids. But the entire earth was against God. They were sinning. They were... The, 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 can imagine this. Like, we think it's pretty rough now, right? But there's still a really high percentage of people that are serving God. 
Not only were there only eight people serving God by the, by the time the boat came, everyone else wasn't just like indifferent, but they were all living in sin and against God. They all hated God. I mean, this, is, this was a crazy world. So God says, you know what? It's time for a do-over. And he sends the flood. And if you guys know the story, Noah preached for 125 years. 125 years. Nobody came to his side. Nobody believed him. Nobody came with him. I mean, I feel bad for the guy, honestly. I mean, literally the least effective preacher that was ever lived in this entire world. Preached for 125 years. Nobody came with But you know what? He did what he was supposed to do. So when I say least effective, hey, the truth is, is he did exactly what God told him to do. So as far as God's concerned, well done, good and faithful servant. But nobody came. Nobody said yes. And the entire world perished in that time. That's what he says. The earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. That's creation. And then by means of the, these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. This expression here, the world perished, doesn't mean he destroyed the earth. It means the, the people, all inhabitants of it. Just like in John 3, 16, where it says, God so loved the world, God didn't come to save this rock. He came to save us. That's what it's referring to. So the people perished. And then he says that, that the point that Peter's trying to make is, is that if God spoke and the heavens were created, and then he spoke again, and everybody who was unrighteous, everybody who was sinful, everyone who, who hated him were destroyed by a flood, then isn't it kind of foolish to say what God can and can't make happen? That now they oh no, it's just going to be the same. God's not coming back. Listen, if God said it, he's going to do it. And God can intervene in this world, however, and of particular importance to what, what Peter is trying to say, whenever he wants you know, I, I am so thankful that we serve a loving God. We serve a God who cares about us. And, that if, and he, he did everything to, to redeem us, to make him right. And the truth is, is that the people in Noah's time, they had every opportunity as well. 125 years Noah preached to the entire, to the entire world at the time and, and gave them an opportunity. They refused. Even then, God didn't kill anybody. They all knew it was coming. They had an opportunity to respond. And I thank God that he loves us and he cares for us and that he wants the most for us. And I believe that he's a good father. And if I know what it's like to be a good father, the scripture says, how much more so does he know what it's like to be a good father? So when I talk to you about this impending judgment that's coming, the destruction that is coming, this is not so that we're to be afraid or to think that God is somehow a, an, awful, an awful dad, an awful God. The truth is he's, he's given everybody an opportunity to escape this judgment. It's available to everybody. But the reality is, is that even if it weren't, God is God. Like somehow we've, we've lost sight of God is God and, he, and what he says goes. And the way he wants things to be is how things are. And, and I thank God. He's an awesome God. He's a, he's a pure God. He's great. But if he wasn't, still God. Does anyone get what I'm trying to say? He can do whatever he wants. Francis Chan had one of the most... Uh, uh, eye-opening statements to me. If you guys know who Francis Chan is, he's a Chinese uh, uh, a pastor and evangelist and a, an incredible speaker, but he said, you know what? If God said that all Chinese people had to stand on their head for the rest of their life, he said, I wouldn't agree with it, 
but I would do it because he's God and that's what he said to do. So many of us want to pick and choose what God is and isn't allowed to do based on our own personal opinions and that's just not how it works. God can intervene however and whenever he wants and at God's word, the world was created and at his word again, it is held together. And the scripture says actually, by his word, by the same word, the heavens and earth that, are, that now exist are stored up for fire. The reality is, is that God's keeping them around. He's holding them together by his word. The reality is, if this is true, then certainly at his word, he can send his son to return. And to establish his kingdom and to extract judgment. So knowing these things, Peter says that the world is being stored up for fire. It's being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Once again, I just want to encourage you that if you're a Christian, it's not referring to you. You're not the ungodly. You've escaped out of judgment. This isn't something that Christians have to be scared about personally. It should be something that terrifies you for your neighbor, though. This should drive you to share the gospel with everybody that you know. Because there's an entire world of people out there that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if somebody doesn't tell them and they don't respond, if they don't accept the free gift, this is what awaits them ultimately. That's why it's so important that we demonstrate godly lives. That we don't ever do anything that would compromise the gospel in people's eyes. That's why Christians that live like hypocrites are so dangerous because they're, they're effectively keeping people from responding to the gospel because they go, why would I want to be like that? They're no worse off, they're no better than anybody else. Matter of fact, many of them look worse than my unchristian friends. Or they look hypocritical. They do all these things. We don't realize it, that we're actually putting up roadblocks in people's way instead of demonstrating what a life changed by the love of God actually looks like. The reality is, is that God said he would never send the flood again. But it appears the next one is coming by fire. Fire's still on the table. And this isn't something that, that Peter's making up either. If you look in, in Isaiah and, and Malachi, both also associate fire with the return of the Lord. Isaiah 66, 15 through 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots, like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and rebuke with flames of fire. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. The point is, is that God created the world. His word holds the world together in reservation for future judgment. And if his word said he's going to come back, and the world will be undone by fire, then we ought to believe that, even if it isn't happening on our timeline. I'm just thankful as believers, like I said, that we, are, we will pass out of that judgment. And man, you should want to bring as many people along with you as you can, because they don't have to perish as well. They don't have to endure this judgment either, because salvation is made available to everyone. And that's actually where Peter ends this, this kind of section of the scripture as he talks about that. He says in verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, that's, it's something we can all talk about, and I, I won't go into it too deep today, but the reality is, is that some of us, maybe some of you in this room are thinking, man, that seems pretty harsh, God. That seems like, it doesn't seem like a godly thing to do, but the reality is, is that to not do so would be ungodly because God is pure, God is righteous, God is holy, God is light. In him there is no darkness. For God to, to, to not deal with sin, to not deal with this stuff, actually makes him not God. If he allows unrighteousness, if he allows these things, it makes him not God which is the brilliance of the gospel because God said, look, I know these people can't do it on their own. If it's left up to them, they're all going to be destroyed. So he sent his son. He stepped off the throne. He walked down here and paid the price for us because he loved us that much. When people ever want to complain about a, uh, this God, one, it's because justice has to be served. And for God to be unjust means he's not God. But two, think about what he actually did. Knowing that there was no way we could do it ourselves, he got off the throne, gave his life for us so that every single one of us would have the opportunity. And a matter of fact, is the reason why he hasn't come back is because the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, towards all of us. They thought that he was coming back sooner. They, they, they thought that he was coming, much, coming back much quicker than he was, but the reality is, is God doesn't interpret time the same way that we interpret time. The truth is, we have no idea how God interprets time because we don't have a, a, uh, any kind of foundation or anchor point or any way to relate to anything but being in time. From the moment we were born, time has only gone one direction for all of us, and it always goes at the same pace. Sometimes it feels like it goes faster as you get older. I, I'm convinced it has to do with how many bills you have. It's how fast time goes by for you. But the reality is, is that, that time only goes forward for us. We, we know how to relate to time. And we understand what a short amount and what a long amount is. But we don't understand how it works for God who's, who's, who is not inside of time. He's outside of time. And that's why, why Peter says a thousand, a thousand days is like a year to God or a thousand years is like a day. Or a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The, the reason he says this, I actually don't think this is literal. I think it's, it's, it's Peter trying to explain that we don't understand how God deals with time. God just is at all times at once. He knows when the end of time is, not because he's, he, he was in the future in the sense that he can travel back and forth in time, but the fact that he's there too. God doesn't, and it, it, if it's just blowing your mind, it's, it's because we don't understand how to relate to time without time. So we think God has taken forever, 2,000 years for crying out, Lord, crying out, Lord, crying out loud, Lord, why is it taking so long? But to him, time doesn't work the same way. That's what Peter says. Listen, guys, you don't get how time how God is dealing with this. What you're seeing as a long time is, is like a drop in the ocean for God. And what you're seeing as a short time, maybe that's forever for God. The, the reality is, is he doesn't interpret time the same way that we do. But the good news is, is the Lord actually isn't slow. As we would count slowness, but he's patient towards us. So his slowness has nothing to do with a passage of time, but rather an opportunity for people to respond to the gospel. He is waiting as long as it takes 
in our timeline for his plans to be fulfilled. To give people the opportunity to respond and repent and come to him. Several years ago, I attended a youth conference, and I think I've shared this story with some of you. But uh, at the end of one of the nights, they had the most incredible response. A room full of, of thousands of kids. Almost every single one of them responded to an altar call to either give their life to the Lord or to rededicate their life to the Lord. They all, like the whole place came to the front and responded to an altar call and they all gave their lives to the Lord. And I remember hearing somebody say, I wish Jesus would come back right now so that none of these kids would have an opportunity to backslide, to, to fall away. And I remember that being a terrifying thing to me because all I could think is, but if he came back right now, <clears throat> what about all the people that we haven't reached? What about all the people that haven't said yes right now? God is patient for everyone to have an opportunity to respond. Church, when we read this stuff, let's, let's remember that, you know, in some ways I wish, I wish you would come back right now because I would love to be with him, I'd love for it all to be done, to be spending the rest of my time in heaven. But the good news is, is that, that uh, probably not that much longer here on earth for me, at least in the grand scheme of things, I get to be with him anyway. But the reality is, is that the longer that he tarries to come back, that means the more people will have the opportunity to respond to the gospel and to not have to deal with the judgment that is coming. Because Jesus paid it all for them, amen? Amen. So let's make sure that we're not wasting any day that passes by. Let's understand that, that this is serious business. What we're dealing with is life or death. It's heaven or hell. Every person that, that we have the opportunity to minister the gospel to and we don't, that could have been their last time to say yes. So take it seriously. And know that he is waiting for now, but there's going to be a time that the, the wait is over. And at that point, the opportunity is lost for so many. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our heads.